Well, good morning. I am excited to be here this morning and to be able to start off our summer-long series on mental health that I was able to put together with George and with Lawrence. And I wanted to start off um, this, this series with a story of a good friend of mine. And this friend of mine is actually um, a pro rodeo barrel racer. And she was at a pro rodeo several years back, and she had bought a 10-minute warm-up time in the arena. Um, which is kind of pricey, but it's a good idea if your horse has never been in the arena. And she was running late, and a piece of her tack broke, and she's like, great, now I've got like nine minutes of this pricey 10-minute warm-up time in the arena, and she's like, ah, oh, forget it, I'm just going to go in and work in the arena. Anyway, and so the piece of tack that broke, um, well, it's a breast collar that holds flush against the horse's chest, this, um, this strap that goes from behind the horse's chin um, to kind of keep their head down to the cinch that runs behind the horse's front legs to keep the saddle on. And so that breast collar broke, and so it was just kind of, you know, a loop there instead of being flush against the horse's chest. And she high-loped her horse through the barrel, and um, when it made that, that turn at a high speed, its leg went into that strap, and it was just this train wreck of an accident. The horse came down on top of her. She doesn't even remember a lot of what happened. They ended up taking her to the hospital and um, scanned her for brain injury. And the doctor said, you need to have surgery now. You've had some major brain injury. I don't remember what it was. I think it was some hemorrhaging in the brain. Um, and she was absolutely adamant, nope, God has healed me. I do not need surgery. And I know there's a lot of um, medical professionals in our church, so I'm, I'm guessing that you probably feel the frustration and tension right now that that doctor likely felt. And he's like, you, you can't leave. You need surgery. And, and she was adamant, no, I do not. And so the doctor decided to call her husband. And her husband um, is not as charismatic or outgoing as she is. She's, he's just kind of easygoing, nominal-type Christian. And um, the doctor told him the situation, and he said, if my wife doesn't want to have surgery, then she doesn't have to. And my friend was like, I couldn't believe he said that. And so the doctor still is in this tension, frustrated situation, and so um, still saying, you, you, I can't medically let you leave here with this type of injury, you know, to let you leave against medical advice. And so finally decides to run another scan. And that scan comes back clear, that there was no signs of injury. And so my friend loves to tell that story of to give God the glory and praise of how he supernaturally healed her. But then there's other times where he doesn't, and she has to go the natural means for healing. And so I, I think it's a good story to start off with because it, it brings to the surface how does God heal and when you hear that story that I just shared about my friend, some will hear it and be excited. Like, yes, we're finally hearing some stories about God working supernaturally. We need to hear more of that. And others will hear that story and be suspicious. You know, and as we go through life and we encounter various ideas, we're going to have our reactions. We're going to have our reactions and we're going to have our preferences and we're probably even going to have suspicions. And I think today's text really brings some clarity to the question of, how does God heal? 
as well as some clarity to our reactions and our preferences and even our suspicions. And so, um, like Lawrence read, we're going to be working through 1 Timothy. And since this whole summer-long series will be topical, I want to take a little bit of time to just unpack and share a little bit about the setting and background of 1 Timothy. If you can pull it up on your phone, I think it'll um, help you to get into the Word a little bit more. Um, Yeah, so Paul, Apostle Paul, I'm sure most of us are familiar with him, has left Timothy. So Timothy, his... His son in the faith, his, his helper, his intern, his co-laborer, Paul's left Timothy in Ephesus. He's gone back to Macedonia to visit some of the churches that they planted up there, Philippi, Thessalonica, and he's left Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city. It's one of the capitals of one of the provinces in Asia Minor. It's a pretty major city. It's got about 200 to 250,000 people in it. And um, I think it's kind of interesting. It's a free city, which means it's run by its own democratic assembly. And we also know that Ephesus um, is just this mixture of beliefs and ideologies and religions. And maybe it's because it's run by this free democratic assembly you got to be willing to hear different beliefs and ideas in democracy. And in Acts 18 and 19, we learn a lot about those different mixtures and beliefs. So we know there's paganism there, which isn't surprising since it's part of the Roman Empire. We know magic arts. The magic is really embedded, both from biblical accounts and archaeological accounts. Magic is really an important um, belief to many in Ephesus. Judaism is present there. Christianity is present there. There was even a a kind of a weak or maybe initial form of Christianity even before Paul got there with the disciples who um, did, and Apollos who came there as well, who didn't know about this full counsel of God. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit. Um, And then, of course, after Paul is there, then there's a network of house churches and a significant uh, presence of Christianity. And then um, finally in Ephesus, there's also an importance and an emphasis on academia and philosophy. There's that hall of Tyrannus that Paul went and preached in. Um, And a hall was used by traveling lecturers or readers to share their latest rhetoric, their latest philosophy. And so the fact that Ephesus has this hall there shows that that's what they were welcoming. Come, bring us your latest philosophy, your latest rhetoric. And partly I share some of that because I don't think it's that much different than the Twin Cities today. There's a lot of similarities there. And at the beginning of 1 Timothy in 1.3, Paul clearly states why he left Timothy in Ephesus. He says, I left you in Ephesus so that you can charge certain persons not to teach false doctrines and specifically not to devote themselves to myths. Myth literally means a fictitious story. In the passage that Lawrence read, myth is also used, and um, King James Version translates that um, term myth as um, old wives' tales. So to, um, to charge certain persons not to teach false doctrines, specifically not to devote themselves to fictitious stories and endless genealogies. That's why Paul felt it was so important to leave Timothy in Ephesus. 
And then in the beginning of the passage that Lawrence read for us today that we're looking at in 3.14 and 15, Paul goes on to share why he wrote this letter. So there's a reason why he left Timothy in Ephesus. There's a reason why he left, why he's writing this letter. And you can hear a sense of urgency in Paul. He says, I left you in Ephesus, or excuse me, I'm writing this letter so that if I am delayed, one will know how they ought to behave as a household or family of God in order to be a pillar and support of the truth. God's telling the church through Paul that the way we live and the way we talk and the way we act and what we teach and what we profess matters as the church to be a pillar and support of sound doctrine, which is a synonym for the truth. So we know why Timothy's in Ephesus. We know why Paul wrote this letter. And then we get to a major idea of this passage. And this idea continues through the passage that we looked at today. And it's a theme of godliness. And it's a theme of how godliness is connected to both the physical, natural realm and the supernatural, spiritual realm. Both aspects are important components of this idea of godliness. And so we see it in, in three key places in the passage. First, we see it right away in 3.16 where it says, the mystery of godliness is declared by Jesus being both flesh and spirit. The mystery of godliness. Jesus is both flesh and spirit. The mystery of godliness is the gospel. It's saying that God the Father sent God the Son to take on flesh to be manifested in flesh, to experience everything that we as natural, material humans experience, and yet to be vindicated or justified. That vindicated or justified means to be proven or shown to be sinless and perfect. So Jesus was manifested in the flesh, and yet vindicate, proven, shown to be perfect in the spirit, which is God. This first aspect of the mystery of godliness is that Jesus is both physical and spiritual. The next place where we see godliness being connected to both the physical natural realm and the spiritual supernatural realm is over in chapter four, verses four and five, where it says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. God created the natural, physical realm through his spoken word. And the physical, natural, created things are intended for our good. And in fact, they're holy when we will acknowledge them as from God and receive them with thankful prayer. And then the third place where we see that godliness is being connected to both the physical natural realm and the spiritual supernatural realm is at the end of this section um, in verses 7 and 8 where it says, train yourself for godliness because godliness is both a benefit in this present life and in the future life to come. What it's saying is that godliness benefits the here and now, the natural, material, physical world now. 
and it benefits the future spiritual life to come. Godliness is connected and rooted in both the physical and the spiritual. So what's the problem here? You know, why is Paul needing to leave Timothy in Ephesus and make sure he's teaching that both the physical and spiritual domains are understood to be significant parts of godliness? Well, right in 4.1, it makes it clear why it's evident from the text that it's so important because to disconnect the spiritual realm from the spiritual, the physical realm from the spiritual is departing from the faith. It's departing from the faith and following demonic spirits and deceitful, or excuse me, following deceitful spirits and demonic teaching coming through liars whose consciences are seared. Not connecting the spiritual and the physical is departing from the faith and following myths, silly, fictitious stories, and endless genealogies. Specifically, it's a warning against departing from the faith that both the physical as well as the spiritual realm originates from God and is good. It's even holy when we acknowledge it as from God and receive it with prayerful thanksgiving. When someone doesn't, when we, when anyone doesn't acknowledge and consent by faith that godliness includes both, the physical and the spiritual domains, what ends up happening is there's a dichotomy between these two realms or a dualism that gets propagated. And Christian dualism is the perspective that God and the physical realm are distinct and separate. It's the split reality perspective of life. It basically subscribes and operates in the belief that all of life can get separated into two main categories, the secular that emanates from the physical natural world and the holy which emanates from the spiritual domain. And there's sort of this prizing of the spiritual and and a suppressing of the physical. And what happens next that Paul is warning of through the Spirit is that things that are physical, created, socially constructed gifts, like marriage. Marriage is a social construct. Government would be another one. But Paul is saying that these physically created, socially constructed gifts should be viewed as holy. But when we break away from that, we start to abstain from them as if they're not quite as good as things in the spiritual domain. This was the idea that was prevalent in Gnosticism that really kind of came to its peak in the first and second centuries, like if you've ever heard of those Gnostic Gospels. And Gnosticism believes that all natural material things are considered bad and all spiritual things are considered good. And humans were spiritual beings trapped in these material bodies, and the key is to free our spiritual nature from the chains of the material world. So how about for us? You know, is this just something from the first and second centuries um, that the Ephesians in antiquity needed to deal with? You know, are, are we enlightened and past this in our modern technological information age? Are we able to think holistically or do we still 
categorize and compartmentalize? Do we understand and have faith that the triune God is Lord over all spheres, both the physical and the spiritual? Do we understand that all created things can be good and holy when they're acknowledged as ultimately from God as creator and thankfully received from him? You know, when I shared the testimony of my friend and her healing, what were your reactions? What was your gut reaction? Were you thinking, yes, now we can finally hear about the power of Christianity, the supernatural work of God? Or was it something more along the lines of wondering if there was really just a natural explanation for the healing? Was there a suspicion that maybe this was an oversimplification of a complicated medical situation? If you were in that first reaction, that we need to see the ability of God to work supernaturally, and we need to understand that spiritual warfare is real, it's a reaction against humanism, and it's valid. You know, humanism is sort of the idea, like, sure, you can pray, but if you really want healing, if you really want a solution, you're going to need to do something. But the weakness of putting an emphasis on the supernatural when it's alone and separated from the physical is that you can become increasingly suspicious of anything that isn't spiritual or Christian. And often this leads to a rejection of common grace or creation grace. You know, God's common grace for all humankind. God's grace for all of creation. Which is supported in verses that say, um, in Matthew, where it says... He makes his sun rise on both the evil and the good. He gives rain to both the just and the unjust. If we don't hold to common grace, but tend to prize that which is spiritual or more Christianly or has a Christian label, you'll start to act and believe and behave that a person, a politician, a scholar, a writer, a researcher, a psychologist, a counselor can't be led to truthful, accurate findings if they're not a Christian. Or they can't be led to as accurate findings as a Christian. And this ignores that that doctor, that researcher, that philosopher is still created by God and as such by God's loving grace and because he is still over all, that person still has gifts and abilities given to them by God the creator that can be used for valid, accurate findings for good. This same friend of mine who was supernaturally healed of a brain injury, she's got some nice horses. They are costly and valuable in both price and athletic ability. And she had a horse that got seriously injured in its back left leg, and so she prayed for healing. She knew God had healed her of a major brain injury, and he could heal her horse of this injury as well. But he didn't. 
he sent her to a vet, to a very excellent, highly skilled vet who is not a believer. And that is how he healed his horse, her horse. And in the process, because my friend is a loving, gracious believer, she was appreciative to that vet of his skills and his giftings and his abilities because she recognized that's how God is still working. God is not limited whether this person chooses to put their faith in Jesus Christ or not. God is still working through this person. I mean, she was, as she interacted with him, able to talk about faith and the Bible in a loving, gracious way. But ultimately, she did not disqualify God's ability to work through an unbeliever. If we don't understand that God works through the physical, natural, material, created world, his created world, even through socially constructed things, again like marriage or human-made technologies, we will grow increasingly suspicious of good created things and people rather than realizing that the creation of these things proceeds ultimately from God and his sovereignty. And even more that when we acknowledge that these good things are ultimately from God and under his control, when we acknowledge that and receive it for thanksgiving, it's for our good and it's holy. And it's demonic and deceitful to not think so. Or it's following after silly myths. Zoloft is an anti-anxiety med. And if it's received with the acknowledgement that it could only exist because of God, with thanksgiving, it is holy. And this is different than just popping a pill and thinking it's a silver bullet to cure you. That's why Paul in the next chapter in 1 Timothy 5-7 tells Timothy to drink some wine to cure his frequent stomach problems and other physical ailments. That isn't any different than Zoloft. Is wine directly created by God? No, but all the material parts that go into wine, plus the technological ability to improve it and make it, comes from God. This is the same Paul who performed so many miracles in Ephesus that people were literally bringing handkerchiefs and aprons to touch his skin so they could bring them back to people to be healed. And this same Paul tells Timothy, drink some wine and receive it with thanksgiving from God to cure your physical ailments. Now on the other end of the spectrum of the reaction to my story is maybe seeing the need to put forth human efforts and working hard for change for life and for society. And that's also a valid reaction We should be putting forth human effort in the here and now and being rich in good deeds. And for those who feel strongly about putting forth human effort to work for change and improvement, there's also often a reaction against um, what I'm going to call over-spiritualizing situations. And what I mean by over-spiritualizing is the view that all problems are merely a problem of sin or idolatry or spiritual attacks. 
And this type of over-spiritualization can be simplistic and ignoring some root causes of biological factors, reducing everything to sin, and it certainly diminishes the value of God using his physical created order. Again, so it's fair to have this reaction of wanting to see human effort take place in this present physical natural world and realizing that help can come through this physical natural world. But if we hold this view in isolation from the spiritual, what ends up happening is we can become suspicious of the supernatural. And this can lead to placing all of one's faith in human effort which again is the essence of humanism. The idea, sure, you can pray, but in the end, if you really want a solution, it's gonna come through you doing something. Humanistic philosophy believes if we just put enough time and enough effort and enough money into science and technology and helping each other like philanthropic organizations, we will have healing. We will overcome problems. We will overcome suffering. Humanism ultimately views the Bible as intellectually weak and an oversimplification, so it's really not adequate to address complicated situations. It believes that the Bible doesn't have the true power to overcome these complicated problems like science and technology does. So we pour endless amounts of time and energy and money into where we think the real solution lies, into science and technology and human service organizations. You know there are over 10,000 apps for your smartphone for mental health? I had to fact check it. I wasn't even sure I remembered it right. There are over 10,000 apps. Some of them are free. Some of them cost a couple hundred dollars. And it's because many people believe that's where our solution to mental health lies, in science, and technology, and human effort. And when we think that the real solution is attached to human effort alone, we won't see or believe there is spiritual warfare. There is demonic possession and activity that needs to be dealt with. I've read over the past year, I've been reading a lot of books um, as we kind of review our counseling efforts at TCC. And um, one, which I've mentioned before, is by Eric Johnson called Soul Care. And the other one is by Zing Yang Tan, who wrote Lay Counseling. Both of them have their PhDs, one from Michigan State, one from McGill University in Canada. And both say in counseling that counselors need to be able to discern when issues are demonic. And if they can't do that, they need to refer the counselor to someone who can. Now, they don't ignore the biological, the cognitions, cognitive, psychosocial, moral spheres, and they don't reduce everything to demonic activity, but they recognize it does need to be addressed at times. And I realize this isn't something we see as much in our country as in other parts of the world, but it's something that we should still be able to discern and address. So how does Jesus overcome? You know, we clearly have a propensity to react and respond based on our own preferences. And when we act and respond based on our preferences, we're departing from the faith. Faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, who embodies the mystery of godliness. 
you know, experience shows us that we'll tend to find others who have similar preferences as our own, who see things the way we do and segregate from people who hold different convictions. If you don't believe me, look at our current political divide. Look at the dichotomy of responses to COVID. And as we create and live in dichotomies, separating God's sovereignty from some domains and overpricing other realms. And yet, even if we see this, even when we see this, we're helpless to change. The Old Testament is full of example after example after example of how we can't be just given more information or try harder or be given new rules in order to have changed hearts. In fact, if left on our own, First Timothy's warning us we're going to follow after silly myths, fake stories, endless genealogies, even demonic teaching. However, Jesus has already overcome this dualism and our human tendency to live and create in dichotomies for us. He's already overcome this split reality of life for us by being manifested in the flesh and vindicated, justified, shown to be perfect in the spirit. It's like he took these two domains, swallowed them up, and interconnected them for us to show us this is what it is like. In Hebrews 2.8, it says that everything has been put in subjection under his feet, and that now in putting everything in subjection to him, he, the Father, left nothing outside his control. All things are under Jesus' control. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 that we study a lot in our house churches. Um, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created, or excuse me, I skipped some of that. So are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus overcomes our preferences, our reactions, our suspicions of any created thing, our suspicions of any supernatural entity, because all things are under his control. Nothing is outside his control All things hold together in him. And because he's able to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, as Colossians 1.20 says, we have peace. We're not controlled by suspicions or fears or dichotomies. So how can all of this impact us as we look at mental health? You know, I fully realize that there's going to be biases that come out of modernist and postmodernist teachings and researchers from believers if they don't if they subscribe to those philosophies. When a non-believer because they don't have a biblical worldview and don't see God as in control of all things, their research, their psychological principles like Maslow's self-actualization or Freud's psychotherapy, it'll need to be filtered through the word of God and prayer. However, we as believers can redeem the natural, physical, empirical research 
through prayer and the word of God because Jesus is in control of all things and it can be used for good. Like for Maslow's self-actualization, what he actually meant by self-actualization is a radically individualistic um, self that ultimately holds the ultimate value and source of meaning and power. Now as a Christian, I can recognize the psychological principle of a healthy person being able to appreciate their individual self-worth and attach it that we have self-worth because it's given to us by God and based on him creating us. So I filter what I read through the lens of the gospel, through the word of God and prayer. I do the same thing with Freud's psychotherapy. If you take Freud's psychotherapy and you push it through the lens of the gospel, is what you get is what we've basically been reading in a lot of the Psalms. That if people are going to be healthy, they need to remember and they need to tell their stories. It's one aspect of sound psychological health. We don't need to overprize things in the spiritual religious domain, nor do we need to diminish God's ability to work through his created world. We don't need to minimize God's, but we don't need to minimize God's ability and to work supernaturally either. You know, in the religious sects, there's going to be a tendency to overly focus on the spiritual and the moral realms. And in the secular divisions, like the natural sciences, which I've worked in for years and love, there's a concerted effort to consider only the biological and then the psychological, psychosocial, mental processes and dismiss the moral and the spiritual. That's got no place. But because Jesus is over all things and because all things hold together in him, we as his family with his indwelling spirit can connect all four of these spheres together and work in and out of them freely and see their connection. And I just kind of in closing here, I would like to just show a diagram to kind of put it all together. Coming up here. Oh. oh, is it on here? Oh, slowly coming on, circles, looks a little bit like a bullseye target. There, I think the labels are getting closer. So you see these two spheres here that um, the natural sciences like to work in and stay restricted to, though that is kind of changing a little bit, but you've got the biological and the psychosocial, and then you've got the two outer spheres, which is the ethical and the spiritual. And my point is being, and again, just wanted to close in this, is that we as Christians, because Jesus is over all things, we have the freedom to consider all four of these spheres and see their connection and work in and through all of these. Okay, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, and as we pray and we filter texts from other worldviews through the lens of the word of God, and when we receive it in thanksgiving and acknowledge God, your creator of all, we can receive medicine, surgery, social constructs, technologies as gifts given to us from our generous father who has an abundance of bounty and delights to give us good things and share with us good things. And then we walk through this present life seeing and thanking God for and experiencing the holy. 
As we see God over all these domains and realms, we don't minimize God to work supernaturally. We know he's fully capable because all dominions and thrones and rulers and authorities are under his control. And if there's spirits or demons to bind up, we do it because Jesus is more powerful. But the result is our hearts are changed. And they're directed to greater praise and adoration of God, whose sovereign power and gracious love enables us to use all these realms for our benefit and for the benefit of his children, and to see God as the source of all healing and good, whatever route it comes through, because God is in control of all things. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do want to acknowledge and praise and thank you that you are sovereign and you are in control of all things. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to come and be manifested in the flesh and to be vindicated and justified, shown as perfect in the spirit. Lord, thank you that through Christ we are part of your family and part of this victory and connectedness reality as well. Lord, strengthen us and give us wisdom and freedom in how to grow in our understanding and how the physical and the spiritual are connected so that we may see more of your beauty and give you greater praise and glory in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.